you might have heard of the Apple versus FBI case over here. One of the guys in the San Bernardino shootings. So the FBI wanted to get into his phone to convict or gain more evidence or whatever it was. They tried to court mandate Apple to say, you've got to get us into this person's phone. And Apple said, no, we're pushing back. That's a, a bad precedent to set. So there was a big debate, Apple versus FBI. Apple saying it's a basic human right, I guess. That there should be no master key. In that case, the government wanted to be able to mandate a master key that if they gained a warrant, then they should be able to get into anyone's phone at any time. It's a harder question than you might initially think, especially if you're just considering about your own case. You might go, oh, I don't really care if someone snoops on my text messages. What's the worst that can happen to me? And if you are that person, then one, I'd say you're, you're lucky to be in the situation you're in. If you really have got nothing to worry about, then you're probably in the minority, globally speaking, that doesn't have these geopolitical or, or societal things to worry about. But then if you think about the problem more broadly and more philosophically, I think whether or not privacy should be a basic human right is a problem worth discussing. That is Senior Researcher in Security and Cryptography at Microsoft, Dr. Craig Costello. And this is episode 313 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Uh, this podcast is simply a conversation designed to help you make today a bit better than yesterday. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Sometime in the next hour and a bit, you'll hear something that'll make you go, oh, I never really thought, that's interesting. That's a different way of thinking about things. And then today becomes a little bit better than it was yesterday. That's really all we're here to do. There are 300 and 12 other episodes to listen to, uh, plus some heaps of check-ins too. So if you want to go into the back catalogue, it's all there. If you don't know me, my name's Osher. I'm an Australian TV and radio guy and podcaster and book writer and stepdad and dad and uh, weight heavy thing lifter and bicycle rider and um, uh, baby cuddler at the moment. And um, yeah, and this is my podcast. I've been doing it since 2013 weeks ago, however <laughs> many. I've been through a couple, couple of Christmas breaks in, so a while. Uh, so thanks very much uh, for being here. Thank you so, for, so much to everyone that listened to the Rebecca Giles episode, which was an absolute corker. That was last week. Rebecca is a survivor of the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami and just truly an, an extraordinary, extraordinary response, and rightly so, because it's an incredible story and she's a, a magnificent woman. So if you haven't checked that out, I would thoroughly recommend you pop back in and listen to that. It was uh, last week, episode 312. Thanks very much to everyone that emailed in a picture of what they are looking at as they listen right now. I like to call it a podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E, like a selfie, but a podsy. Just uh, send me an email, send us your email at gmail.com. Shane, listening. I've just listened to the Rebecca Giles episode while walking up to look out above my house in Russell, New Zealand. The first shot is uh, through a, a tree-lined a peephole halfway up the hill. The second one is a cruise ship heading into the bay there. Absolutely glorious. Thank you so much for listening over there in New Zealand. This one just blew my mind. I'm listening to your Rebecca Giles interview as I leave the Divination Library at Oxford University. Thank you for the thought-provoking podcasts. Best, Lakshmi. Lakshmi, thank you so much for listening from Oxford. What do you do there? What are you studying there? How do you know about this show? I would love to know. Uh, Lisa Senecracker, 
And it's great because Lisa's literally, and the photo is exactly what it is, listening from my driveway because you haven't stopped talking yet and I don't want to stop listening. Lisa, thank you heaps for being a part of it and listening to the show. Super, super grateful to everyone that did send in an email. If you do need anything at all, you can always email me, sendosh your email at gmail.com. I just really do not check Instagram anymore. So there's somebody that does look after that and they occasionally tell me what's happening over there. But Email is the best way to get me. So thank you very, very, very much for that. And everyone who uh, rated and reviewed and subscribed to the show as well, that's the best way you can help this show. Tell someone about it. Hey, I heard this show. heard this podcast. You might be interested. And rate, review, and subscribe wherever you can. Rate, review, and subscribe. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Craig Costello is a senior researcher in the security and cryptography group at Microsoft Research in Redmond, uh, in the USA. His job there is to keep what you want secret a secret, basically using some very, very complicated mathematics. Craig is among a formidable group of young cryptographers whose life's work is to protect the internet against adversarial code breakers, also known as cryptanalysts. That's their job. Now, they're helping protect us against threats that both exist today in our classical computing world and those that will exist in a quantum computing future. Needless to say, he knows what it's ta- what he's talking about when it comes to the security of you and your data in an online world. We do talk a fair bit about privacy, about why privacy is important. You may shrug your shoulders and go, well, it's fine. I've got nothing to hide. We explore that. Craig is a Queenslander and a listener to this very podcast. He reached out to me and told me that he might have some interesting things to talk about. And holy shit, he was not wrong. As far as I'm concerned, there are two types of people, those who have been hacked and those who haven't been hacked yet. Unless you're really, really careful, it will happen to you. But soon enough, as quantum computers come to wider usage, the passwords that you and I both use now, even the 64-character randomly generated ones, will be as easy to crack as if we were running through the banner at an Auskick AFL match. Recently, Google 
have built a quantum computer claimed that their machine was able to solve a problem in 200 seconds. Big whoop, you might say. Well, this is a problem that the world's currently fastest supercomputer would take 10,000 years to solve. The difference between 10,000 years and 200 seconds is a lot. So Craig and his team are working very, very hard to stay ahead of this. Even if you're the kind of person that uses capital P-A-S-S-W-0-R-D-1 as your password for everything, uh, this chat is an important one because I feel it's important to keep an eye on what developments are happening in the world and particularly in the world of data security. It's not just your Facebook account, it's your email, your bank balance, your health records, your GPS data. And as we get more and more connected, things get more and more risky. So it's important that we know the risk and we know what we're being asked when governments say, well, we're going to monitor everything or we're not going to monitor anything or, you know, it's important that we keep an eye on decisions that we need to make as a populace. But it's not all fear. Let's not forget how the world works. In Australia, we drove cars without seatbelts from 1897. And people were being gruesomely injured and killed left and right for nearly a century before we figured out seatbelts were a good idea in 1970. 73 years we drove cars without seatbelts until we went, oh, you know what, we should probably do this. Hopefully this will happen quicker, but don't worry, we do work it out eventually as humans. Hopefully this chat with Craig will help you and me figure it out maybe a little quicker than that. I do note that uh, when, uh, would you believe that when I recorded this show, and this is why it's taken a couple of weeks to get to you, uh, because I did record a little while ago before Wolfie was born, actually. At the point that I recorded, I had recorded 297 episodes of this show and had only lost three recordings, uh, like a 1% loss factor, which was pretty good. Uh, One of them was when the battery failed in my recorder. One of them was when a hard drive glitched. And this one with Craig was a software error. I thought I'd completely lost the first hour of this conversation. I even sent that corrupted file back to Craig, be like, mate, you work in cryptography. Is there anyone that you know that can help salvage this audio? And Craig said, no, it's just gone. We can't find anyone that'll do this. So I thought this podcast was going to be 30 minutes long until Andy Marr, my epic audio producer, who's been working with me for years now, somehow managed to salvage this file. So if occasionally there's an odd chop in the cadence of the conversation, it's because Andy had to slice out the unsalvageable data. But for the most part, he resurrected this file from what was a zillion garbaged ones and zeros. So Andy, thank you. This wouldn't have been an episode without you. If you like what you hear, you can find Craig's excellent TED Talk online. Just search for Craig Costello at TED.com and enjoy this conversation with Craig Costello. How are you, Craig? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Sorry about the, the kerfuffle. You'd think I'd have all this sorted, but uh, no, no. I've never, I've never had to worry about audio quality before. Oh, all right. Well, no, no, that's that's fair enough. It's great. Where are you today, Craig? Uh, so I'm in Redmond, Washington. So yeah, I live in Seattle. S- Seattle, Washington, where um, Starbucks comes from, but also Microsoft. Indeed, indeed. And that's where I'm sitting right now on campus. Fantastic. Yeah. On the Microsoft campus. They call it a campus. Yeah, yeah. That's America for you. They, uh, university's called school and you go on campus still, uh, whether, so- it's a, whether it's a school or otherwise. <laughs> well, you definitely, uh, you don't sound like you're from the States. In fact, um, earlier when we were dealing with some audio issues, I heard a distinct bit of Queensland in there. <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, I, um, 
I read uh, recently that you're from Brizzy as well. So I am. I'm, I grew up on the Goldie, so we're not we're not far from each other. But my family always talk about the fact that I've come back with no, like I've been over here for almost a decade now, and there's still no American twang. How do you do that? You did the same, right? You were over here for a long time. Yeah, my R's are still destroyed. Oh, really? Yeah, I yeah. My I, I guess I guess for my job, I was communicating a lot more in a broadcast sense. Yeah, yep. so I had to change my vowels and um, flatten my vowels right out. Have better diction and change the letter R. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, because when I um, when I say my dog's name's Charlie, Charlie. Yeah, and if someone in the dog park is like, "Oh, what's your dog's name?" and I say Charlie, they think it's Charlie. Uh, you know, so I really have to say Charlie. Yeah, and car. And things like that. Yeah, I got bored of saying things twice. Like, can I have a water? You have a wart where? Uh, no, yeah, wa- yeah, yeah. water. I'm on water. Glass yeah, of water. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, enough. <laughs> um, how does a kid from the Gold Coast end up researching cryptography? <laughs> yeah. Microsoft. Let's get that part before we get into the nitty gritty of uh, yeah. what I would really want to talk to you about. Uh, yeah. how, did, how did that happen? Like, you went, you're on the, the Goldie. At what point did you go, yeah? I might be some higher education beyond uh, my geography here. When did the yeah, idea, yeah. I need to go to your Q, show up? Uh, so I, w- I was actually at QUT in Brizzy. But, yeah, for me it was like the track that led here was pretty much set in stone from like early days. Or at least in hindsight, I, f- I feel like I was I really never had a choice along the way. I never never a, a big choice to make because um, for me at school it was like math was everything. It was like my one true love and uh, – that was from age five all the way through. So I knew I was always going to do pure maths. It was kind of the only thing I was good at and, and the one thing I really, really loved. And then – so it was always going to be a pure maths degree at university and then I just didn't want to stop really. So I went on and did my PhD. And then the last year or so of my PhD I did in California on a scholarship and then uh, basically never left the States, stuck around here, a couple of internships and then, uh, yeah, full-time researcher. So I'm someone who – I really should have taken maths in space, but I yeah. my ego jumped in and, and said, no, you're a smart person. You should go do maths one. And I ended up just basically humiliating myself every day and just destroying my <laughs> will to live. But yeah, I, yeah. Uh, So I could never understand what it was like to see these things click so easily. When did you realize that you could see things more than other kids in the class? Um, I, I think it was pretty early on, but for me, it was, I guess the inverse of you. So for me, maths was the only one where it did that. I felt like a fish out of water in all the other, in all the other units and all the other subjects. But, um, no, early on, I was like driving to driving to school with mum and working out number plate combinations and doing things like that. And I think basically from, from early days, it was like, okay, this is the one thing I'm good at. And then it was, it's kind of one of those things like I'm stoked that I was at least good at something, but it. I guess I'm more grateful for the fact that I'm interested in it and that I love it because that's um, I've seen kids that are much bigger brain power than I that that kind of fell out of love with it and didn't follow it. So uh, the thing that I'm most stoked with is that I'm I'm still you know it's still the thing that I want to be doing the most and that I'm happiest doing. Now, when we're talking about maths, we're talking about the goodwill hunting, um, hidden figures, <laughs> kind of massive blackboard yeah. squiggly maths, aren't we? Yeah, a bit of that. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, some of those stereotypes are pretty far-fetched, but some of them are true. We do spend a lot of our time on the whiteboards, um, looking out the window, sitting there, uh, reading stuff, being confused, and, yeah, spending our time in the offices what is with it, chalk. What is it that you love about 
the truth that maths gives you? Um, a lot of people like, as you can imagine, when you talk to someone at like at the bar or you talk to someone random and say like maths is the one thing I love and it can be a conversation killer because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, fuck, maths was like, that was the one thing I hated and, you know, I was never good at maths and blah, 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 blah. I, and I get it. For me, that's a lot of other things. For me, it's like music. I, I mean, I love music. I just am terrible. I've tried to pick up a guitar or play a piano and I'm just, I just don't get it. But one thing that's true is, and that I think a lot of people who are mathematically inclined would say is, and there's actually been kind of like neuroscientific studies that have shown that for, for people that are this way inclined, the brain waves that get set off when you're a musician that, you know, discovers a really, a really great chord or a really great beat or whatever it is, or you're a poet that reads a really great bit of poetry, those sorts of, um, I don't know, little, little mini brain orgasms that you have, they're the same for us uh, mathematicians when we discover something, some sort of truth. I do like the purity of it, that it's, that it's very gorgeous and elegant when you kind of dig deeper and, and find things out. But I also like the confusion and the messiness too. That, that a lot of most of my time is spent very, very confused and very um, all over the shop, not really knowing what I'm doing. And then when the penny does kind of drop and things become clear, all of a sudden it's a really nice feeling and you feel a little bit smarter or you feel, you know, that much more well equipped to go and do the next thing. Because it kind of is the language that we use to describe the universe that we exist in, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's right. It's um, they, they call it the mother of all science. And so it's it is what underlies yeah, the whole universe in a way. It is our the universal language. We we talk about different languages around the around the globe, but maths is something that no matter no matter which continent you were looking at, all of these different languages and cultures discovered the same mathematics. So it's like a universal truth. You know, they might have the Greeks might have called it something different, but these things are all we've discovered all the same thing, which is which is mathematics. Yeah, the way that the, the 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 physical space that we exist in operates, and and how things outside of our immediate perception, our line of sight, may also operate. Because if the same rules apply here, then they apply in this remote location, and we can figure things out in that way. And it gives us its extraordinary seeing power into the distance, into the past, into the future, can't it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, because at the moment I'm listening to this extraordinary, uh, when we're recording this, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and I'm listening to this yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary podcast called 13 Minutes to the Moon, which describes a lot of the geometry that went on and um, the programming of the tiny but incredibly powerful computers that went into the lander to do all the, yeah. to, to make sure these guys would, the jet would fire at exactly the right amount of time because they know exactly how much force comes out of this exactly a jet and at what point above the moon, where the gravity force will be. So that'll be different a hundred feet below it, yeah. you know, so adjusting for all those things to make sure that they, these two guys didn't just shoot off into space forever. And the, the tiny margins of error that they had to like, <laughs> so, so sketchy when you look back and these computers were of course incredibly powerful at the time, but like... Compared to your and my iPhone now, you know, um, yeah, we've, we've got it a lot better, I guess. It, it is true. And, and yet some of these calculations were done by people like yourself mm-hmm. to double check against the computer to make sure that- Pen and paper, yeah, yeah, on the blackboard. Which is- Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's super dicey. <laughs> yeah, but it still, it shows that the power of, as you mentioned before, someone might be able to not only compose, but also 
visualize, perform, and play with incredible emotion, something as complex as a Rachmaninoff, and just go, oh, yeah, now I'm just going to have a sandwich. You know, yeah, whereas yeah. for me, it'd be like, okay, I've got three chords in the key of C and that's it on a piano. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, that's three more than me, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that music is here because I know quite a couple of, you know, super nerdy guitar guys who are mega maths heads because they just really, well, the, they get off on the, the maths of it all, of that A is well, 440 is and that, that, that like, octave blows 220. This and- is the thing they've always, um, there's always been this, I don't know, I guess I confirm that it is a myth, but there's always been this perception that mathematics and music is, you know, if you're good at one, you're good at the other. Yeah. And I think the impression I get is that it's definitely in one direction. So I feel like good musicians tend to be able to grasp mathematical concepts easily, but I'm definitely the um, <laughs> the proof of that the converse isn't true because, yeah, I'm, I mean, I love music, but I'm just never been able to get to get it going well the dexterity is also a part of it and if you haven't got the yeah, dexterity, yeah. I mean, and you know i'm one of feeble dexterity but i was able to get it by but there was a point there was a hard ceiling where i could not yeah, get yeah. above that's yeah for, yeah yeah that's for sure so you, you you landed yourself in the states as you said you've done a couple of internships which is a a great passage uh and does exist in Australia. I feel it's a mm. bit more powerful in the States, but like recruiting people straight out of university and then the the internship programs are uh, as far as because talent is so rare, yeah. the recruitment and the courting of, of highly talented people such as yourself is a very interesting thing. It goes across a number of internships. And you, you land there at, the, at Microsoft. Tell me, what, what do you tell people that you do there? Yeah, so the idea is, so I do encryption, but I'm kind of a, I have a mathematical background, so I do kind of more theoretical stuff that's like not necessarily going to go into Windows or Word, you know, or Office or whatever tomorrow, but might be used sometime down the line. So I guess part of our role as researchers is to try to anticipate what sort of encryption is going to be unsafe and safe in the future, what we're trying to sort of heading towards to keep our software secure. Uh, so the idea is to, as I said, try to anticipate the way that the, the, the field's going and try to keep up with the state of the art and maybe push beyond that. Um, so a lot of our stuff tends to be blue sky stuff that might not end up in products for a decade or so or, or never at all. But that's the that's kind of the research game. You're trying to stay ahead in, in a way. So for just so we can get some common language here so people who may have never considered this stuff can enjoy our conversation, mm-hmm. people know they have to put a password in when they visit their friends to get on the Wi-Fi, people know they have to put a password in to access their Facebook account or their Gmail account or their yep. Instagram account. That's probably about as far as most people's concepts of encryption go. Right. So could you give us a, a basic kind of idea of what happens when something's encrypted? Yeah. So I guess the password thing is is the example that we all know, but the main kind of example that we work on is because the password stuff, it's kind of not all that complicated. Um, but the main example that we work on is essentially what's going on anytime you do anything of interest on the internet. So your banking or something like that. So you do your banking, you send a WhatsApp message to your mate, you make this Skype call with you and I. The way that it works is you and I talking right now, we're talking on Skype, which we hope is end-to-end encrypted, which means that so what's happening is you're sending, we're both sending our information over this big information superhighway called the internet. And as soon as it leaves your desktop and as soon as it leaves my desktop, it's in transit and it's going through computers and satellites and all over the shop through transatlantic cables and all sorts of things like that. And while it's in transit, 
if we just sent our data as it is, so if, if you and I just had raw data, like a, a picture or whatever, or this live video stream that we're sending, you know, unencrypted, we just send it as is, anyone with a, an antenna sitting outside of your place or anyone snooping on one of these cables could easily just view what we're doing. Um, so the idea is that we need a mechanism to um, scramble that information before it leaves your desktop or before it leaves my end in such a way that it can safely pass between you and I, such that anyone on the planet with all of the computing power in the world, it, they look at it and it just looks like gobbledygook. Um, so you and I scramble it and the only people that can de-scramble the messages are, are you and I on our ends and then the rest to the rest of the world, all of the hackers, whoever might be snooping on these on the internet, it's kind of meaningless. So what we work on is a way to do that securely. So my layman's understanding of it is that while we're having this Skype call, my machine, when it sends its little packet of data, which is essentially, mm -hmm. let's just say it's like it's a, a suitcase full of ones and zeros, yep. it sends it with a key that only your machine knows how to unlock. Right. So now I'm, I'm glad you asked because now we'll get to the nitty gritty. Yeah. If we use the key and lock analogy, we, we don't have to talk about data or numbers or the way that anything works. We can just use the key and lock analogy. So let's suppose I wanted to just send you a letter. If I just sent you a letter now in the in the snail mail, um, anyone could open it and read it. Yeah. So let's say I wanted to send it to you in a lockbox. How would I do that? Again, from my side, just sending you a letter straight up, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to choose a, a lock and key that I've got on this end. Maybe I can put the letter in a lockbox, put my lock on it and send it to you, but you don't have the key to that lock. So how does it actually work in practice is what you do is you get the key in the lock, you unlock the lock with your key, and you send me an open locked box with your lock unlocked. And then on this side, I can put my letter in, lock your lock, and send it back. Right. So there's there's a bounce of communication before the main stuff happens. Exactly. There's a few passes that have to happen, and that's the way it works. And, and all of this happens if you and I st started texting on iMessage or whatever. All of this happens so fast that we don't really know that it's happening. So like we set up a, a WhatsApp channel and it says, hey, WhatsApp's going to end-to-end encrypt your stuff. Then you're sending me the digital version of that lockbox that's specific to you with your lock on it. I'm putting a bunch of information in that lockbox on this end and locking it and sending it back to you. Right. And the way that those locks and keys work in the real world is using mathematics. I love it. Okay, I love it. Okay, so that okay. now now we're where we are. All right, great. So when we hear people like Peter Dutton, for example, in Australia and in, in the States, it would be the NSA. Here it's the Australian Signals Corps. Hi, everyone. Yep. Nice to see you guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They're listening. <laughs> to you and to the NSA. Yeah. How, how does that part work? Because we hear so much about, and I'll get into this part later. Well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. I'll get into that bit in a moment. But yeah, yeah. How, how does that part work? How can someone like the Australian Signals Division, uh, sorry, I got the name wrong before there, can there someone like the Australian Signals Division or the NSA then? Directorate. Uh, the, I think Australian Sig Signals Directorate. All oh, right. Sorry, it's a directorate. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I didn't mean to, you know, belittle your hard work keeping us safe. Yeah. How yeah. does someone like that then access? Do they just have the master lock like your landlord does? Uh, theoretically, no. So if we've implemented everything correctly, then mathematically it is secure. 
So if, if you and I actually are using an app like WhatsApp or Signal that let's hope does everything the right way, then really they've got Buckley's chance of, of getting in. Often, like all of the real-world attacks, like we saw the NSA exploit and things like that, that was uh, through bad implementations like implementation faults or through what we saw in the Snowden leaks in 2014, which is the, you know, the NSA were essentially spying on all of America and the rest of the world. The way that they did it was working with big tech companies to put backdoors in the encryption. So like essentially the encryption wasn't what it should have been. So governments were sort of, I guess, putting pressure on companies to, to give them access to data. Okay, and this leads us to the interesting part. <laughs> Very right, right. Yeah, quite, here we go. Quite rapidly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know you work at Microsoft. Um, yeah. This is a company that uh, there is no argument that it transformed the world. When you think about how they didn't invent it, but what they did with the spreadsheet changed finance completely. Because right. you know, when you think about when we just simply click a formula on a cell. And, and then just change a number 17 columns up and four rows over and the whole spreadsheet changes. That literally took people three days to do because they would sit right, there right. and then they would have to triple check it that they didn't fuck it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they would have to do it by hand. It changed business completely, it, you know, that, yeah. that alone. Word processing also changed mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, it's an extraordinarily powerful, powerful company. Yeah. So, yes, you work there, but it's not seen as one of the, the kind of potential bad guys which we're seeing quite clearly with the work of Roger McNamee in his book Zucked, who is just waving mm-hmm. all kinds of flags about the reach of Facebook and, and Google. Yeah. Firstly, what's your, what's your stance on, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, so I don't have anything to worry about. They can look all they're like. Yeah, so it's a funny one. So first of all, I should really say that anything I talk about or say that it's completely my own opinion and not the uh, not the opinions or beliefs of my company that I work for this is this is me talking on behalf of me only I, I just thought I should say that none of this represents the opinions of Microsoft for sure but it is it is a funny one because you know when I talk about in encryption just to the, the the person walking down the street to try to convince them that it's an important thing maybe not for you but for someone like me or one of my friends, they might say, well, yeah, I'm someone that's really got nothing to hide. The worst thing that could happen if someone broke into my phone, maybe they steal money from my bank. My bank will probably reimburse me. They'll reimburse me. The worst thing that can happen is they see me naked on my webcam, but then the, the, you know, that's their problem if they want to look at that. It's not my problem. And that's kind of like a first level, I guess, a naive way to, to think about these things because when you think about the problems on a larger scale and you start to see that it's, well, first of all, I'm a Caucasian 30-something-year-old male living in a first-world country that's got freedom. I'm not someone who's living under an oppressive regime in a government that's trying to figure out who's who's trying to start coups and overthrow their regime and things like that. So there's, there's those sort of things that I don't even have to worry about that many other people around the world do. But also, if you start to think about it on a more global scale as to like or I guess more of a philosophical moral scale as to what is our human right as far as privacy goes? Should governments be able to snoop on my data willy-nilly or should I have the right to text whoever I want, whatever I want, and know that it's only that person getting the text message? And so with all of these, a lot of these kind of heated political discussions around encryption, this is basically the, the two sides of the discussion. One of them is 
the side where we push for encryption and privacy and say along the lines that it's it's a basic human right. I should be able to send a text to anyone I want and it should be only readable to that person if that's the way I want to do it. The argument where I guess some governments push back is they kind of cite court cases where, you know, maybe someone was murdered or raped or there was a terrorist or a pedophile or something like that that they could have caught if they had access to this person's phone or they could have prosecuted if they could get into this person's phone. You might have heard of the Apple versus FBI case over here. One of the guys in the San Bernardino shootings in back in 2014 or 2015, they needed to get into his phone. So the FBI wanted to get into his phone to prosecute essentially or to convict or gain more evidence or whatever it was. And they said they tried to court mandate Apple to say, we, you've got to get us into this person's phone. And Apple said, no, you know, we're pushing back. That's a, a bad precedent to set. So there was a big debate, Apple versus FBI. Apple saying it's a basic human right, I guess, that they should be able to, there should be no master key. And I guess in that case, the government wanted to be able to mandate a master key that if, if they gained a warrant, then they should be able to get into anyone's phone at any time. Um, so it's a harder question than you might initially think, especially if you're just considering about your own case. You might go, oh, I don't really care. I don't care if someone snoops on my text messages. What's the worst that can happen to me? And if you are that person, then one, I'd say you're, you're lucky to be in the situation you're in because if you really have got nothing to worry about, then you're probably in the minority, globally speaking, the, the lucky minority that doesn't have these geopolitical or or societal things to worry about, which is you should consider yourself lucky. But then if you think about the problem more broadly and more philosophically, I think whether or not privacy should be a basic human right is a, is a problem worth discussing. Yeah, you, you are right. It is an incredible privilege to think uh, if they want to look, they can look. Yet we are in an age where pretty much everything ever is getting stored. Every communication is, is getting stored. And yep. yes, we have a calm and stable government in Australia right now. There is, may not be calm, but it's stable government in the States right yep. now. Uh-huh. Let's flash forward to 10, 15 years and things are, are way different. Right. Let's go full dystopian. You know, things are, you know, either ultra naturalist or things are like just ultra in the other direction. And the government wants to find out, well, who's likely to be weird to us? Okay. It's probably guys who are in their mid 20s. Okay. Who. In when they were 17, 18, was, you know, exploring these forums or saying these kind of conversations and reaching out to each other because right. they're probably the kind of people of at that age that will act right now. Right. So, yeah, it's worth knowing, like, you may be, you may think it's, you know, there's people in my life who are quite concerned about the fact, well, one of them is a bit nihilistic about it. One of them is like, well, I'm gay, so I'm already on the list no matter what. I'm there for life. Right. You know, we may have voted yeah, gay yeah. marriage in now, but who's to say what happens in 20 years? And, and you may, you know, you may have gone to a climate rally, you may have gone to an Australia First rally, you know, yep. and then you, later on you changed your mind about how you felt about things. But, you know, we're talking about like permanent records where warrants may or may not be needed to get access to this kind of stuff. So, yeah, you're right. It's a big question. <laughs> I don't have an yeah. answer. <laughs> no, no. I, and, and I don't really have an answer either. I think the best answer we've got, so I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the Australian government's one of the talking points globally on this exact issue right now. So in December last year, they passed a bill that essentially gave the government the ability to want the master key. So the government was saying, if if you're a tech company in Australia, you've got to give us the ability to be able to get into your consumer's data. Again, citing things like terrorism and crime and, you know, on our behalf, which 
I like to think that we can give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they are motivated by the right reasons. But on the other hand, as someone who works in the field, all we've ever seen in movements like this is that it doesn't work. So we saw it in the States with the Snowden disclosures where the NSA tried to do this. I think it was post 9-11 that was disclosed in the documents that they had this mass surveillance regime of, again, using what you would hope is citizens' interests to set up this scheme where they could essentially hack into anywhere and spy on any telecommunications, whether it be phone or email or whatever. Um, And they used this to set up this massive database of everyone. And then that kind of brought up this question of what is right and what is wrong as far as mass surveillance goes? Should the government be able to do this? And again, it's easy to try to be black and white on the issue, but it is it is a very grey area because anytime you say, yep, no, you know, you and I should have complete freedom, you know, we should be able to use end-to-end encryption and no one should be able to get into our data if we don't want them to. But then you, you look at any case where, I think there was a case in Massachusetts where someone was murdered and the person who was murdered's iPhone or their whatever it was, could have been the BlackBerry or whatever, had all of the evidence on it. They kind of assumed that the prosecution could go through if they could get this person's iPhone that was dead and the family were begging for the tech companies to help and the judge was trying to get the tech companies to oblige. And so you, you look at cases like that and you're like, of course the government should be able to do it if it gets to that extreme. The problem is, and I think the main problem is that as a cryptographer, myself nor anyone else in the field, we don't know of a mechanism that allows that, that prevents further exploitation. So we don't know of a mechanism where the government can say, okay, only with a court-mandated order can we get through the encryption, but otherwise it should be unbreakable. Because as soon as you have a weakness that you can exploit later or a backdoor, we call it a backdoor, it's like a way in for someone that doesn't have the key, let's say, or shouldn't ordinarily have the key. As soon as you weaken the encryption scheme, then you weaken it across the board. So if you want the government to have this ability to get a court order and then come and check your phone, then you've weakened it in such a way that a Russian hacker might be able to exploit that weakness and and get in without the government's approval. So it's a very, we don't really know of a a mechanism where this can work. So Generally speaking, in the field, we kind of really push back against anything that moves in this direction, only because we've witnessed so many times it's failed. So it failed with the United States, and there's no other evidence that it can be done in such a way that people's kind of basic rights are maintained. It all sounds like we are trying to grapple with things that are moving way faster than our legal process and the checks and balances that we've put in uh, have been designed to deal with them. There was probably a time when, I mean, for goodness sake, I, I can fax letters of protest to my local member, which I do, on a fax machine, and they still get it. Yeah. You know, So we're dealing with legal processes that were designed to keep our society and our democracy and our laws safe, but they move at a very different pace and require a very different amount of understanding than the super advanced stuff that you're you're seeing right now. And and we're talking like one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is the deep fake voice synthesis. There's a, a number of these things that have come out. There's a a really frightening one called Faux Rogan. I don't know if you've you've heard it. It needed only 45 minutes of Joe Rogan's voice. Mm. That he just and they took it all from his live reads, 
So when he doesn't have another person yep. in on the show, it's just him reading ads. Yep. They could t- took it all from his live reads and harvested every single vocal nuance that he uses to speak. And then it's basically a text-to-speech and it sounds exactly like yep. him. It, sound, it sounds like him. It's absolutely mental. I've seen the same thing even with video. Right. So they can, they can now do it with both where you would swear till you're black and blue that it, that it is actually the person. It is really scary. I think what you said before is really kind of hit the nail on the head, not just in our field, but in a lot of tech and to a even broader extent, human progress, which is like in many ways we're not mature enough to deal with how fast everything's growing. You, you hear this talk in AI circles with, with the ethics of AI and, you know, even this uh, – these big social media companies with the attention economy and all these sorts of things where stuff is growing so rapidly that the our maturity as a race is struggling to legislate and keep up with this with this growth in such a way that it kind of still favors the people it's a really hard problem in in the specific slice that i'm i guess that i work in but it's also a hard problem across the board as you as you said if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What can we? I mean, this is all sounding quite dystopian and dystopian, yeah, and, and like a Huxley novel. But yeah, exactly. What um, can we kind of do? I mean, I I don't know the slightest to read an article and be frightened of it like you are, but I know that it just doesn't feel too right, and that while these things come with great benefit, as long as the benefit outweighs the, is this okay? Should I be doing this? It will just let it happen. You know, yeah. as long as I can start typing into Google, what is the, and then it will say average wait time on a pizza delivery. I'll be like, wow, yeah. how did it know that? How did it know? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's really useful to me, so I don't care how it knows. Absolutely. It's absolutely useful. I think us being aware of it is is the first step. And a lot of us, even though we might be aware of it, we still carry on. And because it's so convenient, we're, we're going along with it. I don't really have an answer to that. It's a hard problem across the board, really. It's good that the conversations are happening. But as far as what we can do about that, I guess at this point, your guess is as good as mine. I, I don't really have a – I wish I had an answer, but it's frightening in, in many ways. When you look at where we're heading as a society, it's, it's a very diffi- difficult problem to solve. I know that there's some movements happening in the the ethics of social media and the ethics of the advertising economy the attention economy, all of those things are, are, are really important to understanding how we're supposed to navigate moving forward because we're all now connected to this one big system called the internet. We're all interlocked in it and there's um, 
I guess there's no going back. This is true. We still want to be able to take photos and they'll be stored digitally. Yep. You know, we want to be able to still involve ourselves with these extraordinary technological advances at our disposal, but, but I guess try to keep us safe. What's the first, you know, what, what's the kind of general, not you, I'm sure you have a, a, a triple lockdown digital bunker with all your shit in it and a time no, code. That- no, actually, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm super hypocritical. Really? I'm super hypocritical. Yeah, I mean, I've, I work in the field, but again, I'm kind of, um, I, I use WhatsApp, but I'm not texting anyone, you know, um, nuclear codes or I'm not, um, I'm not yet in, in the pregnancy phase either. So I, I think again, these sorts of things depend on on what you're doing, and yeah. So I, I don't really practice what I preach, but I know a, a lot of people around me do. There's people who they'll be trying to put their slide deck on their computer, and you'll say, "I'll oh, borrow my USB," and they won't let your USB anywhere near their computer. They'll there's people that have. Um, these things called Faraday cages sitting around their computers because they don't want the, you know, these physical processes like electromagnetic signals and stuff to be released from their computer because they think that might leak some sort of information. <laughs> you know, there's people that really take this stuff dead serious and probably with good reason. Right. So maybe we're not going to have a Faraday cage or Snowden's now I'll ask you to turn your phone off and put it in the fridge with the battery pulled out, which is I believe yeah. what, what he would do. Um, yeah. <laughs> probably because he knew why. What's some general things that we can do to make sure that we're kind of doing the best that we can with our data in the current environment we live in? So I would say that there's good apps and there's good open source software as well. So if you are serious about this stuff, then Signal and WhatsApp are very good messaging services. If if you are sending data to each other and you want you want to be sure that it's end-to-end encrypted, then that Signal and WhatsApp are kind of the two I guess, highly regarded both in our field and, and globally as the two leaders of, of this field. There's, if you're doing anything online, there's Tor, which kind of scrambles who you are and where you're from and what your IP address is and all those sorts of things. There's SVNs that you can set up if you want to tunnel anywhere securely. But in the, I guess in the day-to-day, in the day-to-day with using things like Facebook, Instagram and, and all those sorts of things, I don't know if you can do more than keeping your profile private and things like that if, if privacy is what you want. I think more being aware of the conversation of what you're signing up for is a, is a big one because we all just scroll down and click accept. You know, we all just look at the terms and conditions and go, fuck, that looks like a headache. That's a lot of stuff to read. I'm not reading any of it. I don't think I've ever read any of it. I want to do this fun thing this app tells it'll do now. Oh, yeah, install because I, I need to use it. And then uh, we're wondering why I just spoke about something at lunch and now I come back to my computer and I'm being target advertised with that exact thing. So I guess being aware of what you're signing up for is is a big one. And if you're comfortable with it, then I guess you're making that decision. But otherwise, there there is – the other thing I should say is there is mechanisms. So there is mechanisms that we as cryptographers or mathematicians know are secure. So if there is something you want to do, there is open source software you can install in any direction, whether it's on your phone or on your computer, there's always software available that will keep you protected. It's, I guess it's a matter of effort if you really want to go to the effort. Because at, mo- at the moment, we're just kind of trusting with our fingers crossed that yeah. Google and Facebook will yeah. not we'll look after you. Will look after us, you know. And yeah. I don't have a tinfoil hat on, but I know enough about election outcomes and had referendum outcomes uh, yeah. to know that 
you know, these systems are extraordinarily powerful and the right person who knows how to use it really, really well and completely legally can alter reality for very specific people and therefore alter outcomes in the real world. And that shit is kind of scary. Yeah. Yep. What you said is both um, sounds quite general and metaphorical, but it's also concrete and true as we've seen in the last few years. It's very, very true. And yeah, indeed, indeed, it's very, very scary. So what I think we work towards doing is trying to take those decisions. Like you said, what can we do? I guess our goal as cryptographers and people in tech companies is trying to do it all behind the scenes so that people will only do all those things if it's dead easy to do. Otherwise, we can't be fucked. And so we try to make the software secure so you don't have to worry about it. But then there's always trade-offs between you know, functionality and performance and whether it is too costly to encrypt things or whether it's just easy to send them in the clear and then whether the users are notified, whether they're sending their nude pics in the clear or whether they're actually encrypted. These are things that we try to do. We try to make it so that you don't have to know and that we're doing it anyway, but whether or not that actually ends up in the, in the end product is, yeah. again, a different story. Because for me, that's the scarier part. For me, it's like, whether someone sees nude pics or not, mm. you know, that's one thing. Whether someone nicks my bank data and then tries to withdraw 1500 bucks before the algorithm and the bank's end goes, this doesn't look good, and then refunds me because they allowed it, this to happen without the yeah. two-factor authentication, that doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. What bothers me is now I might have a little bit of a tinfoil hat on here, but yeah, you, can, you can tell me. There's a young person in my life who's 11 years old. I've talked about this before. 11 years old, Googled his name for the first time on a device that was his father's at his house. He mm. Googled his own name and me and my wife's face popped up and he's never signed into anything, okay? So somehow algorithms are put together that my me and my wife, we visit his house quite a bit, that me and my wife have been there and our locations have pinged yeah. all right, enough times to know that we are related in some way or have a relationship with this person and this location and this IP address. Yeah. And so, therefore, it's keeping a profile on this person and who this person might be. This person's 11 years old. And that never, is spooky, man. Never opted into anything. Now, if that's happening, here comes the tinfoil hat part. Mm. How am I to know whether, and I, I don't have Facebook on my phone. After I read the McNamee book, I'm like, that's it. Facebook's yep. off my phone. Instagram's off my phone. WhatsApp's off my phone. I'm out. I'll, I'll access it on my laptop, but I cannot compete with the attention-grabbing AI machinery that has fundamentally completely timed my exact habit loops to know right. me personally as my personal user exactly when to give me the variable reward so I'll keep scrolling and spend more time. 100%. You know, it's a different timing for maybe you, maybe for my wife, Audrey, yeah. how long I take until I get bored versus her. It's specifically yeah. tailored to me. And um, so those things are off my phone. Yeah. How am I to go, oh, I'm thinking about, I don't know what's an important vote, something about refugees, all right? I'm thinking about this, how am I going to vote on this refugee? And certain bad actors have, you know, found a way to know people around me and influencing them through news feed stories. So then when just general day-to-day -day conversations that I'm having with these people, face-to-face, -face, not even digitally, their opinions have been shifted by what they've seen. Therefore, uh, now I'm getting manipulated 
by this group of people. That's my super tinfoil hat moment here, Craig. No, that's it sounds far-fetched, but at the same time, it's not, is it? That's the way that things are moving. Yeah, that, that even though I've opted out, I am still vulnerable yeah. to the whims of someone who knows how to use these systems for evil. evil. <laughs> yeah, I think the hope is that the big giants that we all sign up to can somehow keep the evil actors out. But as we saw in the last five years, it's um, there's a there's a way. So yeah, I guess I guess it's not too tinfoil hat. It's kind of depressing in that sense. Yeah, that you've even opted out, <laughs> still getting trolled by the. Yeah, there's that great moment. He's 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 left now, and he handled it what he was accused of very well. But Senator Al Franken, in the Senate hearings on the 2016 election, asked. Yes or no, Mr. Zuckerberg, did you get paid in rubles? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Far out. Yeah. It was an yeah. amazing fucking moment. Poor, poor guy looked like a deer in the headlights, eh? Oh. <laughs> but what's wild now is that, and now, you know, we're looking at LibraCoin, which is a, a cryptographic blockchain currency mm-hmm. that... I think 200 companies uh, are a conglomerate signing up to use this currency between them, um, yeah. of which Facebook is a part. And Facebook got called before the Senate in the States to explain this new financial instrument. They're keen on saying, hang on a second. And Facebook did not show up. Like, Really? Yeah. They're like, we don't I, need I to go. That. We yeah, don't need yeah. to go. How many people are in your country? 350 million? We have 4.1 billion users. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, so we're just kind of crossing our fingers and hoping that these guys, they're Sergey, Larry, and, and Mark, and mm-hmm. Cheryl as well, I guess. Yep, so there's yep. three men and one woman who are all kind of slightly libertarian, and therefore the code is kind of slightly libertarian. I know this is the, right, the right. fact of the matter is that your political outlook will influence how you code, that they won't do the wrong thing. We're just kind of hoping. Right. With our fingers crossed, exactly. aren't we? And, and that's why there's. I haven't really formed a, a concrete opinion on it yet because my initial gut reaction was, oh, this has got the potential to be revolutionary. But then I saw immediate pushback from a lot of people in our field, I guess, that were like, you know, they're taking away the control from the banks. They're going to decentralize and blah, 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 blah. And then the immediate pushback was, now they've got the control. <laughs> now they've, they control even more, which again, we're just hoping that for the 4.1 billion people that have opted in and for the all the people that opt into this currency that there's not there's not something uh, malicious underlying the the motives it could be i have to look at it and go well you know what what's really great that could happen you know it it really could yeah. you know, we've we've talked about but the internet will connect the world doesn't really cuz someone from i don't know pakistan and what they had for lunch doesn't interest me. We're using the same platform. It doesn't interest me. Yet, if in some sort of microcredit way I can offset the carbon in this country that that person is putting out using a – or he can offset the carbon in his country that I'm putting out, that right. can then create a micropayment to make it more – you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. just it's, by, it's- bypassing all kinds of international diplomacy, just let – if the money is flowing – then yep. the ideas will happen and that, that might be the shake-up we need, you know? Absolutely. Theoretically, it's it's really gorgeous and it, I really like the potential. I think time will tell whether whether the blockchain solution is the, is the one that will kickstart a revolution in the economic sense. We really are hurtling towards all of this and not even towards, we're in it. 
we're yeah, in yeah. it, aren't we? And we've already handed over the keys, haven't we, Craig? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and now we just, uh, yeah, as you said, there's a little bit of fingers crossed. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to imagine that what's a market, what's a financial market, when you look at those spikes and those candlestick graphs and whatever, that is an ability to look at a mass decision-making of a cross-section of society, you know? Right. That's ultimately right. what it is. These are emotional decisions by yourself, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe we're, you know, as humans, we're generally, we always err on the side of being kind to one another and looking after the people around us. And, you know, sometimes that can be in the case of, well, I'm going to fight for resources to keep myself. But if we can, if there's a an ability for enough resources for everyone to get by, you know, we've, we've generally and through history ended up on the peaceful side of things. So I can Absolutely. only imagine that that will continue. Yeah. And we are, as depressing as a lot of these things sound, the murder rates compared to decades ago and hundreds of years ago are slowly, they're getting down per capita and, and all the things like that. I think we are tending towards a better humanity in many ways. Yeah. There's a lot of kinks that we're sorting out and this whole technology revolution has introduced a lot of fun problems. But I, I do agree. I'm, I'm an optimist in that sense that <laughs> we are working towards a better place and that these inventions and that their intended use is coming from a good place. Got to be an optimist because if you think about the other side of things, it's pretty frightening. But, no, it's super depressing. Yeah, but let's so let's talk about you, you know the, the thing that you're quite a specialist in. We when we talk about cryptography, we talk about in this context of this Skype call, my machine sends your machine uh, an open lockbox and a lock. Then you send me a packet of data inside my lockbox and you lock it. And then I know now how I have the key at my end, so I know how to lock mm-hmm. it. So that's you know and when that data is streaming on an undersea cable through the air, interceptable anywhere on anyone yep. who's got access to my Wi-Fi signal sitting in my street, yep. it's essentially a bunch of jumbled data. With current computing power, can't do anything with it. Yet. Right. We've heard we've – yet. <laughs> Quantum computing is is coming. Yeah, that's it. Essentially, when you've got a computer that acts – you know, okay, let's get a def- definition here. What What is quantum computing, Craig? So quantum computing's been around for a, a few decades. It's kind of um, – it's very, very different to all of the computers that we currently use. So all of the computers we currently use, the ones we're talking on now, our iPhones, fundamentally at the, at the lowest level, they're based on our classical interpretation of the world, based on classical physics. So you and I both being apes that understand, you know, how things work on our level at the kind of human level – we see things being in one one place or another at one time. We see throwing a tennis ball at a wall, it's going to bounce back, it's not going to go through the wall. These are all phenomena that we know that are all due to classical physics, or they all fall into the paradigm of classical physics. Quantum physics is a, is a relatively new branch of physics that's only been around since the start of the 20th century. So for a little over 100 years, since the days of Bohr and Einstein, there's this new wave of physics that is concentrating it's what's going on really at the tiniest uh, nanoscopic scale. So we're talking at the level of subatomic particles, electrons, protons. And essentially at that level, we don't really know what's going on. So we know how the classical physics behaves according to the laws of Newton. And we know how to map. If we throw a, a ball, we know how it maps as it projects through the air and things like that. That sort of physics is centuries old and, we, and we've got a good handle on it. At the subatomic level, we really don't have a good handle on how things are going. And so basically late last century, 
we, we started to get a handle on the rules of quantum physics. We just couldn't really simulate what's going on on a classical computer. So using these zeros and ones to look at information or to, to represent information was getting us nowhere when we came to simulate quantum behavior. And part of the reason is because of these these rules that come about in, in the quantum level. So there's things you might have heard that like an electron can be spinning clockwise and anti-clockwise at the same time, or, you know, it's spin up or spin down at the same time, which to you and I as as apes, it's like, bullshit, that, what? Nothing can be doing two opposing things at the same time. And, or, you know, a proton in the, in the quantum realm can be in two places at once. You and I think like, that must just be physicists talking bollocks. Like, that's bullshit and that can't be happening. But then I think the first step to kind of getting a handle on quantum mechanics is to kind of have a, a quick lesson in intellectual humility, which is to, to think like, we believe that we've got a good handle on what's going on because we've evolved to be at the top of the food chain and we managed to escape the plains of Africa and all of a sudden be able to clothe ourselves and invent iPhones and technology and all this sort of stuff. So we feel like we've got a good handle on what's going on. But the truth is we we have no idea. And if you kind of look at it philosophically for a second, you realize, well, that the fact that we've got no idea is how it should be, that the, the universe doesn't really owe us an explanation. The fact that we know anything at all is the interesting part. And really that most of what we've got to discover is, is yet to be discovered. And, and I think quantum mechanics is kind of the next step towards getting a a picture of reality. And so in quantum mechanics, these experiments were, were showing that, yes, electrons are both particles and waves, which we didn't think could be the case. And yes, you can model the behavior of an electron as being both clockwise and anti-clockwise simultaneously. So late last century, when physicists began to try to simulate quantum behavior on our classical computers, they began to realize that like this zero and one paradigm of representing information didn't capture what was going on with quantum behavior. So if you think of it as like you're trying to simulate a molecule and a molecule's got a bunch of electrons in it. And the second you add an electron to a molecule, this electron could be spinning clockwise or anti-clockwise. And you've got to then simulate how it's interacting with every other electron in this molecule. Um, so essentially you've added one electron to this molecule. It's only become slightly more complicated, but you've doubled the number of the, the computing resource that you need to be able to simulate this thing, at least on a classical machine. And so very, very quickly, even quite simple, what we would look at as a simple molecule, we can't actually simulate it on a computer. We can't actually use our classical zero and one computing, a zero and one representation of information to capture what's going on in the quantum realm. So then, yeah, again, late last century, these physicists had this really, really brainy idea to instead say, okay, if this stuff's so complex that we can't use computers to do it, then maybe we need to build computers that are using whatever complex shit it's doing to help us do things more powerfully. If this, if this is really powerful behavior that we can't simulate, maybe we need to use this powerful behavior ourselves. And this gave birth to this notion of quantum computing. So since then... Now people are really trying to build quantum computers, trying to build computers that are not founded on the zero and one, the classical information theory, but are founded on quantum information. And from what I think, it's an extraordinary explanation. Thank you. <laughs> I, hope, I, I, I know I, I, I got a tendency to ramble, but um, no, no, no. Yeah. That's the that's the best way I've heard it described, uh, and I'm really grateful because now I can ask the next question. I'm guessing these things will be therefore 
super, super powerful and will look at our ever so clever cryptography that you have created to keep us safe as like meh and just see through it. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what my last five years of research and my colleagues all around the world were uh, we're kind of trying to gear up against... So quantum computers already exist. That's the thing. In the classical computing, we talk about bits. So the fundamental unit of information is a bit. You can It can be a zero or a one. And at the lowest level, that corresponds to like a, a transistor can be letting current flow through or it cannot. So you can see how the information kind of aligns with this physical process. On a quantum computer, we're kind of using this fact that objects can be a combination of two things at the same time. So an electron can be, with some probability, it's spinning clockwise, and with some probability, it's spinning anti-clockwise. And when you map that onto like information theory, it's basically saying that on a quantum computer, we call it a qubit instead of a bit. It just stands for quantum bit. And on a, on a quantum computer, a qubit is actually some combination of being both zero and one at the same time. Again, it doesn't make sense to us humans because we think something can only be one thing at one time, but... If we could see these things happening at the quantum realm with a really powerful magnifying glass, then you could see two, something behaving in opposing ways at the same time because that's what we see in experiments. And so the, this qubit is in some combination of, of zero and one at the same time. And the, the idea with building a quantum computer is somehow harnessing these really crazy subatomic processes and aligning them to be able to do computations on them. So the current limitation is really one of engineering. Five or 10 years ago, I think the world record was maybe 10 qubits. So maybe some lab in the world somewhere was able to build a computer where they could compute in superposition, which is a fancy quantum word, but they could compute essentially on 10 qubits at once. Now, on a classical machine, 10 bits is nothing. Like you and I having this phone conversation, we're sending squillions of bits over the wire, you know, every second. Uh, so classical bits are really cheap. Quantum bits, they're very powerful, but they're very hard to be able to actually get in practice. They're hard to be able to engineer. Part of the problem is that the quantum subatomic particles are very, very unstable. And so if you if you Google quantum computer, you'll see these massive, like weird cascading cylindrical looking telescope things and a lot of the effort in quantum computing goes into cooling so it goes into literally making these computers as cool as possible so they need to be almost as cool as the universe can be so they need to be close to what we call absolute zero now absolute zero is zero degrees kelvin or negative 270 degrees celsius so it's fucking cold <laughs> And essentially, Einstein proved that you can't, at that temperature, essentially nothing can happen. And we can only really, if we're talking about real-world engineering, we can only get very, very close to absolute zero. So instead of negative 273 degrees Celsius, these computers are operating at negative 272.99 degrees Celsius, very close to absolute zero. Because at this temperature, then these subatomic particles, they kind of can be slowed down, I guess, to the extent where we can do computations on them while they're in these funny states, extract information and then use that information. So a big part of the problem in building these quantum computers is is actually the engineering effort. We know how to do it in theory. It's just actually getting this together in a lab 
where you've got all of the right conditions and there's no interference from external processes is a very, very difficult problem. I think that's the problem that, that physicists and computer scientists around the world are trying to solve. If they haven't solved already. Part of me is like... Oh, uh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, part of me is like, there's a Manhattan Project going on somewhere. Part of me is like, oh, this is so hard. We really need to figure this out. Meanwhile, there's this gigantic turbine funneling liquid yep. nitrogen into a hole that's five kilometres yeah. deep, you know, <laughs> where yeah, yeah. something's been running for the last three years. Um, 100%. Cracking in, our encryption keys, no problem. It's either in China or the US. Yeah, you know. I'd bank on the same. Well, we, we actually know. We know that there's big, big bickies being invested to these efforts with government agencies all around the place. Because what happens when you're the first country that does this and goes public? Yeah, so if it happened right now, if they've got a quantum computer right now, then um, at least in my field, they've got the master key. So all of the encryption we currently use that that we thought was going to be forever unbreakable, at least according to the laws of classical physics, we've got a good handle on how hard these things are to break. And we choose encryption schemes that with as much classical computing power as you can potentially muster in thousands of years with all of it combined on the planet, you still can't break these encryption schemes with a classical computer. But if a government had built one single large-scale quantum computer, then all of this stuff goes to shit. They can hack into essentially whatever they like. They can look at all of our traffic. They could do a lot of damage to other governments. They could control economies. They could snoop on us at ease in theory. So our hope is that one hasn't been built yet and myself and many colleagues around the world are kind of working to try to get uh, mechanisms in place before one of these things is built. Uh, these me- are mechanisms to protect data from one of these machines. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it just turns out that all of the encryption we were currently using, all of those hard mathematical problems that secure your lockbox as it comes across the ocean, Quantum computers are damn good at solving those. They can do it quickly if they're big enough. So we're kind of working on schemes that you and I can still use on our iPhone now. So we only need a classical computer to implement them, but even a quantum computer. So we call it post-quantum cryptography or post-quantum security. So we're trying to get this stuff standardized and rolled out really quickly so that even if someone starts storing your data now, they're not going to be able to look at your ultrasounds 10 years in the future when they've got their hands on a quantum computer. Because um, if Yuval Noah Harari is anything to go by, it's uh, yeah. whoever gets this one first then uses that machine to teach itself to be smarter and then oh yeah, whoever pushes that button will be un- – it'll create a chasm that's so vast that yep. you could create one half an hour later or an hour later or a day later yep. and it wouldn't matter. You're too late. It's too late. Yeah, this is the, this is the intelligence explosion. So quantum computers there – They're not infinitely powerful with all problems. They're very, very good at some things. They're very good at some problems. One of the things that they'll be really good at is self-optimization. So if we look at any sort of complex circuit, just for the the sake of an example, let's say you were trying to map the quickest way to get to some place in the Netherlands, and you want to go through all car options to the airport, all walking options to the bus stop, all possible flights, that quickly becomes very, very exponential complexity. Quantum computers are very good at solving those optimization problems. They can essentially look at all of them in parallel and hone in on the correct one or hone in on the best one in in a small number of steps, whereas our classical computers, in a sense, would have to try one after the other to find the best way. Now, when you talk about a, a computer, it's got a certain circuit design, it's got a certain you know, hard nature of hardware. If you have a quantum computer, 
it could look at its own design and let's say you want it, it wanted to add on one feature. If you add on one feature, to make sure it's optimized with respect to all of the stuff that's already existed in the circuit, classically at least, it would have to try all, that, all the combinations, okay, this is the optimal one. A quantum computer could self-optimize by just looking at all of those combinations in parallel and then optimize across all of them, find the optimal solution, and then I guess self-improve very, very, and this is all happening rapidly. So this Yuval Noah Harari argument is is actually not science fiction. It's um, it's very real. They talk about the intelligence explosion. So when, indeed, when someone builds AI that's capable of of doing something like this, they've won the race because this explosion is so exponential that it's really first one to get there. It's wild because um, you know we we talked about this earlier and that. We are living in a world that has for at least the last 300,000, definitely the last 10,000 years, operated on our time frame. We're unconscious for eight hours of the day. Things can only be transmitted between two people as fast as I can speak them to you. Right, uh, right. And as fast right. as you can hear them. All right. And that is how a lot of our processes of negotiation, of legal process, of conflict resolution have occurred at that yeah. pace. And now we're at this point where, you know, say I want to negotiate something with you. We just set our machines mm-hmm. at each other, and within a blink, it goes. Yep. Here you go. Now, would either of us be emotionally ready to uh, accept what the machine yeah. said? <laughs> Probably not. This is again whether our maturity as mere humanoids and the human race is ready for what's ahead, and it's in every direction a hard question. But that's yeah, yet another example where yeah. it's a difficult problem. So what do we do, Craig? <laughs> We just sit back and, I don't know, have a beer and laugh at it. (laughs) That's really, I guess, all we can do, isn't it? I mean, you are in a position of power in this field. I am not. But all we can really do is just be present to those around us and try and appreciate the the humanness of what makes us human at this point. Yeah, I think that's one way to approach it. I think that there is movements around to try to, not to halt the progress, but to try to catch up ethically to everything that's going on. These sort of problems that we're... Um, hypothesizing might not have even come into fruition yet, but there's a lot of discussion about AI ethics, for example. So if you think about these self-driving cars, I'm, I'm pitching this example from someone else that I heard on, an, on another podcast. But if you think about self-driving cars that, are, that already exist, somewhere in that algorithm of the self-driving car, if this self-driving car sees someone jump out in front of the car or sees an accident that it has to quickly swerve to avoid, and maybe there's five people standing on the sidewalk, somewhere in that algorithm, it's baked in what decision it will make in a millisecond. It's baked in whether it will break and potentially hurt the passenger, whether it will swerve to miss the accident and then hit the people on the side of the road. If you've got a self-driving car, which may already exist, somewhere in that code is a rule that's written what to do in a situation like that. And I think it's kind of, this is just one of, you know, squillions of examples we could discuss where, we haven't had that ethical conversation. The ethics of what that technology should do in a given circumstance hasn't, you know, the public won't acknowledge it or don't even really know that it's a point to discuss. These movements that are trying to catch our ethics and our our human values up with where the technology is kind of pulling them is a really important research direction. I think it's this it's far beyond what my kind of very specific <laughs> <laughs> my specifically wired brain can talk about, but social scientists and, and people that are, you know, well-equipped to bring these things to light are discussing these things frantically to try to keep up, I guess. 
Well, I would say Godspeed, but I don't really believe in an interventionist God. So I would say all power. Yeah. I would say all power to them and to you, because I'm grateful to know that deep in the bowels of a campus in Seattle, Washington, that there is a bloke from Queensland who's working hard, <laughs> working hard to make sure that we can go forth into the future as safely and, and togetherly and free from oppressionly as possible, because that's really what all this means. Yeah, mate. Well, try my best. <laughs> I'm, I do it for fun, and uh, if it ends up working, then that's good. But, um, yeah, I'll do my best. Mate, you're the best. Have a fantastic day. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and enjoy the dog park with Charlie, man. I will, I will. Can I just keep you for uh, two more minutes? Whatever you need. If you, if you don't mind, and feel free to cut this out because you're a humble guy. I just wanted to, I guess, piss in your pocket a little bit at the end here because – a month or a month and a half ago, whenever one of your producers reached out to have a chat, it then made me, of course, come and look at the podcast because I'd, I'd only seen you on TV in certain scenarios. And so I've been over here for a, a long time and basically my my way of keeping in touch with Australia on the day-to-day or on the week-to-week was either the Hamish and Annie podcast or Batuta Advocate. And then a lot of my a lot of my intellectual podcast stuff, it's been Sam Harris, it's been Joe Rogan. And I've kind of been, I guess, wondering if there was anyone back home doing it. And I, I just had no idea. And having only seen you on The Bachelor, and I will confess that my girlfriend, who's American, and I are, um, it's one of our, um, what do you call it when it's your secret indulgence or whatever? <laughs> yeah, it's one of our whatever. But yeah, I guess I, I kind of had a, a view of what you're about. And now that I've listened to the podcast, I'm just really, really, I guess, stoked that it, that I've got this as something to listen to because I think you're doing an epic job. I had no idea that you were so well-read, so funny, and I guess most importantly, intellectually curious and very interesting yourself with your own life story. I must even confess, I, I started to read a bit more about you. I tried to buy your book, but on Amazon, it's not available at the moment for some reason. It's telling me I've got to wait till next year. Bullshit. I told them to open it up to the States. Let me sort that out. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, um, but no, I think like, again, you've got a really good position to have the platform that I've been, I guess, I and I reckon a lot of other people have been looking for too. I don't know how, I don't know how many of my friends and, and family back home know about it, but until your producers reached out, I didn't know about it. And now I've already gone back 10 or 20 episodes. The one thing that you're doing really, really well is having conversations because these podcasts with, you know, Sam Harris and well, Joe Rogan's really good at that too, I guess. But sometimes it's like, I feel like it's so dense. I need to write stuff down. But with, um, with yours, you walk away feeling like you've learned something, but also that you've got to meet someone, which is really, really cool. I was loving the, um, oh, you'll have to forgive me her name from McLeod's Daughters. The uh, Yeah, Doris Yunani. Yeah, yeah. Your conversation with her and like, again, acting and, and entertainment so far from my thing. But I sat there listening for two hours and I was just bloody loving it. And then you guys would segue to talk about the Game of Thrones finale for 20 <laughs> minutes. It's just like, it's really funny that you can kind of um, just make these conversations and it's just, it's going to be a regular part of my commute now. So I think you're doing an excellent job and I hope, I really hope you keep it up and uh, as well with many things I'm interested in, like the meditation aspect and the things you talk about on your, um, on your check-ins with sobriety and addiction and stuff, all things that mental health, all things that I relate to in one way or another, but I think a lot of a lot of Australian males can relate to too. So I think Godspeed to you. <laughs> Keep up the good work because as corny as it sounds, I think like 
I think intellectually it's it's good to have someone that can be kind of the champion that kind of has the platform to get interesting guests on and, and have these conversations. Even yesterday I was listening to your one with Briggs, which was really, really cool. And uh, the Stan Grant one too. I, I hadn't thought of Stan Grant for a while and I thought that was just excellent. I think um, with your Indigenous links as well to the guests, I found it really, really valuable. So whether or not you leave this in because you're a humble guy, then uh, otherwise you can. I'll just leave a similar review on the iTunes store <laughs> and uh, you, can, you can take it out. But you I just are- wanted to say... Just congrats to you and uh, please keep it up because this will be part of my my weekly commute now. Mate, I'm so humbled that you said that. Thank you so much. That's a really, a very, very, very kind thing for you to say and I do wonder sometimes because it, it's not like the other work that I do, which is, uh, you know, there's quite a, a, a visual feedback instantly. Yep, yep. So, you just kind of put it out there and hope it does the job. No, it's definitely it definitely does. You've got a knack for making the conversation I, like I'm kind of gutted that I'm not back because I see that the guests that are um that are around there get to come over for a cup of tea and see yeah. the dogs and stuff yeah yeah I um <laughs> yeah nice I saw I, I know Tom Nash as well I saw that on oh, his wow. Instagram that you had him yeah a couple yeah weeks back, who's killer just a story legend. yeah he's yeah. an extraordinary guy so so rad Thanks, man. Well, I'm really, 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 really grateful that you said that. And I'd, I'd love you to come back anytime and, you know, we can talk about, you know, because there's so much that we didn't touch on, like, you yeah. know, living away from home. We didn't touch on, you know, yep. let, you know, things that you've learned from the, the culture at Microsoft and how, what you've observed. I mean, that's the other thing that I find really fascinating is that how Microsoft as a company kind of pivoted out of these massive antitrust things. And then, and now the kind of legacy is that the person that started is literally saving the world. You know, there's a, right. you know, of the, of the really big tech companies, it's, it's one of them that is trying as hard as it can to not be, you know, malicious as, 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 much, yeah. as, as much as it yeah. can. And then, and the ethics that are within the company culture, because something, the way you make a person feel at lunch will go into how he or she then writes that line of code that will or will not swerve the car. That's the thing that people don't fucking get. Absolutely. Yeah, that's literally what happens. It's not made by some um, ethically aligned consortium of 100 people deliberating <laughs> over these things. It comes down to some some nerd like me sitting in an office somewhere writing some script at the last minute to try to catch a deadline and that's what gets shipped. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that's how it goes here. <laughs> no, 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 no. But like a lot of people don't understand that, that, you know, for example, the things that I, I lament about Instagram, that is it has rightly or wrongly taken this uh, work done by a Stanford professor about how to specifically hook someone's attention through psychological tests of, of microseconds of timing with habit loops and rewards and variable reward yep. systems. And it's gone, oh, this is how long this user takes before he scrolls up. This is how many he likes in a row before he sees something he doesn't like. Okay, let's just specifically feed that to him. You know, that was just written by someone who might have had their dog shit on their carpet that morning. And, 100%. You know, and just went, yeah. oh, let's put this in because that would be interesting. That's a way to make it more efficient. And then they went yeah. off to lunch. And that yeah. personal decision by that person sitting in that cubicle has just altered so much. That's a thing. One, one or five people are creating the decisions that yeah. literally feed into billions of brains. It's a scary thing. But then you think about the way that their incentives are, are aligned as a company. And if they don't try to profit on the attention economy, then their competitors will and they'll lose. So it kind of makes sense. But it does, in an unfortunate way, put the onus back on us users who tend to be lazy and <laughs> ignore these things until it's too late. Well, with someone like you 
and the team that you're definitely obviously a part of. There's many more people like you. Um, hopefully, at least we can listen to this and go, oh, there's a light on in a castle somewhere. That's going to be okay. <laughs> Evil drained. <laughs> you're the best, mate. Thank you so much for your time, brother. Thanks for your time, Osher. Cheers. Nice to meet you. I'm really, really grateful for your time. Well, there you have it, my friends. Excellent and frightening all at once. But isn't that life? That it's full of possibility and terror all at the same time. And that's that's where we are. This is what makes us being human. So thank you very much to Craig for making the time to do that. He's a very busy man. And I'm really grateful that he took the time to share that conversation with us. Extra special and excellent thanks to my producer, Andy Marr. AndyMarr.com for all your podcast data salvaging needs. I cannot make this show without you, Andy. Big thanks as well to Rachel Barrett, my show producer, and Mike Mills, who made the brilliant theme song to this and all the things I work on. Mike, uh, you should know that... This theme song is proven to make little kids dance uncontrollably, as was evidenced by a brilliant video that was emailed to me, send us your email at gmail.com, of someone's little daughter just getting her groove on in the kitchen as the opening theme of this show played out. Thank you, Toe Hider, for making our music. Do email me if you need anything. Send us your email at gmail.com. I'll talk to you Friday. Until we speak then, do sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 